0: Two boys are gonna kiss. Wait, is this supposed to happen? Am
1: I supposed to feel this way?
0: No one knows how to have sex. My pastor asked me, why would you want a man's penis in your butt? Like just hooking up is not me but boyfriends. And I was devastated. You're acting a little funny. That means you wanna fuck a man. I find this fascinating. When I come home, everything comes off.
1: Hello, Fade Grey listeners. This is Seth and I'm coming in with another installment of the relationship series. This week, we're sitting down with my friend, Nick. Nick is black, he identifies as queer, he's a social worker, and he lives in St. Louis. So clearly he and I have some things in common. So when I asked him to join me on the podcast, he was nice enough to say yes. So to get this started, let me introduce you to Nick thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to have this conversation. To kick it off, I want to talk about friendships. I really think that friendships are so important to our everyday life. Who is the friend that you've known the longest?
0: Ooh. Um, so my relationship with my oldest friend right now, um, we're actually roommates, which is kind of a weird phenomenon for us to do this at this point in life we haven't lived together before um he moved in maybe like three months ago but our dynamic together i he kind of jokingly calls me the house mom i feel like we're inseparable now at this point
1: how long have you guys known each other
0: we met each other oh my gosh i actually don't know um Maybe, I think 12 years we've been friends for 12 years. Um, We were about, oh my God, is that too long? You know, well, we met each other for the first time when we were about like the eighth grade, but we didn't really become friends until we were about 16 years old. So I'm over 28 now. I think the number one thing that stands out to me is how nice it is to have someone who understands your life in terms of a journey or like a trajectory or even like an arc. I think when I meet people now, which it makes sense, so it's not a bad thing necessarily, but when I meet people now, I think that they interpret you as you are, and that can be limiting. You know, I think whether you have certain quirks or things that might make you angry, um, so not similar to like you being impatient with audio concerns, but like I think that my friend, his name is Sam, who's my oldest friend, I think he can understand, you know, Nick is this way because of, insert, any length of reasons, and it helps them to kind of like navigate my intentions because while your, you know, intentions don't always change the impact, it helps if someone understands, well, maybe this is the why to why he may have, like, this trigger or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he understands the story, which I really appreciate. As a social worker...
1: I'm sure you know that one support system is, in fact, the greatest protective factor against depression, suicidal ideation, things like that. So we know statistically that relationships, specifically friendships, are extremely important. What does your support system
0: look like, and, and what do you prefer? I feel like what I can say is that I don't socialize with a lot of people. I feel like I have very intense connected interlocking relationships but i have a couple of those and i i think that that's really rooted in that i definitely definitely view my friends as my family so i think we get in this kind of gray zone of you know rather than having like a best friend i view these like five or six humans as these very intense best friend family members So that feels intimate and small to me. That's how I would answer that. But a lot of times when I'm meeting people, especially when those five or six people, whether they get into relationships with boyfriends or girlfriends, or I get a boyfriend, we are always getting feedback of kind of saying, this is abnormal to me because you guys are very intensely close among five different people that you share everything with. And so that can be challenging when People are bringing in new romantic partners, so who just don't understand yeah. it. I think, especially as we're getting older, and so even the nature of the relationships we get into is changing. So, like, what I mean by that mm-hmm. is, like, I think as as we're getting older, my friends are getting married. I feel like because none of us know what does it mean to like be married. How do you communicate? How do you act? And so I think because we don't have a template, I feel like what I see a lot is like. You know, it was all fine and dandy when everybody had boyfriends or girlfriends, but when we're moving to this marriage phase, because we're trying to do the only template we know, which is this idea that, you know, it's just the two of you, that's your best friend, your partner, your mate. I think they're struggling to, like, figure out how do I keep this person who's been in my life for five, ten, however many years, who is the other half of me in all these ways while having this kind of spiritual bond of this husband and, or wife again. So I think that that's been something that it's it's interesting that it's becoming an issue as we're getting older versus the serious relationship prior to marriage because I just none of us know what we're doing. Who knows how to be married? What's the right way? There isn't one way. So it, it's really hard as we're all getting married. <laughs> because we had figured it out before and the new challenges are coming up now, so.
1: Tell me a little bit about your support system though. Are most of your friends within the LGBTQ community?
0: I will say the majority of my friends are like heterosexual women. And so I think by the nature of us being in that 30 year old sphere, I feel like this is the time where they are just dropping like flies from the single life. I mean, I feel like I'm in a wedding every season. So they 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 are rapidly getting married.
1: In speaking of marriage, tell me a little bit about what dating was like for you growing up. You know,
0: what it's been like. I you know, I actually I think in a lot of ways it's been pretty typical I think for what, and you know I'm speaking kind of generationally, because I don't know what it's like for gay kids, queer kids growing up now, but I think it was pretty typical in the way that i I feel like it it all feels like a late start, you know, because. Mm-hmm gay and queer kids around me didn't have very traditional, normal dating experiences starting in, you know, like eighth, ninth grade, whenever straight people start dating. And so there was a lot of a learning curve going into your late teens, early twenties, college experience. Um, I will say, you know, what was a little abnormal, my very first boyfriend actually, I started dating him when I was 17, which, again, I think feels young, again, compared to all my other gay and queer friends um, of our age. But that that was an experience. You know, it was, it was weird to embark on dating and sex and relationships and not having anyone that I could talk to about it, not even because I was closeted, but because I did not know another gay person who was dating. Right. So whether it's the more innocent things of how much PDA is, like, safe versus what's normal. And then to the most extreme of, I mean, just to be frank, no one knows how to have anal sex. So, you know, when these conversations are coming up, it's like, you know, I'm talking to my girlfriends. And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I sure as hell don't know
1: either. I had to use several Google yeah, yeah, Like, for real. I remember And I remember the first time after I did it and, you know, there were some things that I was not expecting or prepared for afterwards. I was so nervous. Like I was Googling nonstop, like trying to figure out, wait, is this supposed to happen? Am I supposed to feel this way?
0: And I felt like everything I looked up just by giving it a Google search was all warning about the ways you can hurt yourself. And so I just felt like I was thinking in my mind that this man with this like normal appendage talking about his penis was like impaling me and I was like destroying my... It was just, I was terrified. I was absolutely, absolutely terrified. And I had no one to talk to. Absolutely no one. So, cause I, I was lucky that I had some gay friends, but they knew as much as me. So we were all truly the blind leading the blind. And, you know, I just remember being so overwhelmed looking at, you know, my health class taught us of like, you know, the water-based lubes, like don't break the condom down as much as the oil. And then there was flavored lubes and it's like, you know, you're like so embarrassed trying to buy all these things. and it's
1: well what has your experience been when talking about dating it's nearly impossible to have the discussion without talking about the dating apps because it is the way that we communicate and that's very different than how our parents interacted in the dating world and it's likely different than what kids growing up now are going to experience because it's ever evolving it's ever changing at this point we've kind of got the apps so what do you think there's several of them. You Are know, you on any of them?
0: I actually and I will answer that. I will I just I feel like the first thing which actually I don't think I realized until I'm talking to you now and I'm trying to think about this to make sure I'm like truthful. I don't think I have ever had a dating experience from an app. I've only had sexual experiences from apps, which I feel like that delineation's important to draw. I don't think I've ever gone on a date with a man that I met from an app disclaimer, like I feel like I've had sexual experiences from apps, and then maybe something has evolved from that way, but I have never met a man from an app at a restaurant and like sat down and had dinner in that like linear
1: right it opens the possibility for dates, but it's the date isn't where it starts correct, 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 you know there's that uh line, I think. Who gave it? Jack gave it on Will and Grace. Straight people go on dates with the hope of having sex. Gay people have sex with the hopes of going on dates. Yeah. There's some truth to it. And I feel like the app specifically, like Grindr, Scruff, like they're specifically geared towards getting yeah.
0: into and Yeah. And my friends actually, I very begrudgingly, um, they forced me I mean, it was a true intervention forced. They forced me on match. Um, and this was actually just a couple months ago. And kind of with the idea that they were like, well, if we put you on like a paid site, that's going to like weed out these like blank headed torsos who are just out here trying to like get it in real quick. Um, and I will say while the guys were like, it, you know, there was a little bit of a difference i will say you know some people were much more conversational but definitely still got a lot of dick pics definitely still got a lot of invitations to come over to people's houses so
1: i am not gonna lie i've been on match not a single person talked to me so the fact that you got invites for anything is is saying something
0: Okay, but it's important to remember because let me stroke your ego for a moment because that's what I do. But let me, let me help you for a minute because it's important to remember you don't know who has a paid membership who can message you back. So you can message a free person who can't message back, remember, which is a very stupid interface and system, but we'll, we'll work on that later.
1: Do you feel that since these apps are per- primarily sex-driven and not relationship-driven – do you feel as if they've had an impact on how
0: you view other people or what you find attractive? No. Um, I think the only impact that has kind of resulted in that is I think that it's really clear. Younger me got a lot of intense messaging about what is attractive, and I say that putting up the quotes. And so I think that it affected my self-esteem but I don't think that it kind of permeated me and then affected how I view other people or even what I dub attractive. But I definitely understand kind of the standard and the norm of what's considered attractive I think in our community and how that often does not fit someone with like my hair texture or face shape or mannerisms, things like that. So.
1: this is very judgmental of me but i feel like apps like grinder and scruff really have conditioned me to only like a specific type of person i.e these specific things like they need to be within this weight range they need to be this tall like these specific things that that grinder has seemed to like really i don't know manufactured to where if you fall outside of that range it's hard for me to have a conversation sometimes and i feel like i'm avoided far more like i feel on grinder i may send out nine hypothetically let's say i send out 99 messages i'm probably going to get five responses Mm. I, i don't get much from it (laughs) anymore and I feel like it's changed the way that I view men and I feel like it's made me more judgmental in the long run
0: yeah 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 I think that that makes sense you know I I really identify with that I think our experiences are different but I I feel like I really identify with that you know I feel like my grinder appears busy and there's a caveat to this (laughs) but you know I feel like because I get messages of men who don't feel attracted to me, and I'll flush out what I mean when I say that, you know, it, it feels offensive and hurtful and affects me in that way. And so what I mean by attracted to me is I, I feel like because whether it's kind of like a fetishing type thing or like an assumption of who I might be, I get a lot of messages either around guys who are interested in sleeping with a Black person Or I get a lot of messages of men wanting me to, like, dress up for them and, like, fishnets and things like that, Um, lots of skirts. So I think when being in that space that I occupy, being Black and queer, while, again, I may be getting messages and one would think that that would say, like, oh, like, that makes me feel good because people are interested. I feel like if you don't actually want me, then I, I just identify with what you're saying because I'm like, you're not coming here. Even if it is a shallow request, such as like, I'm interested in like hooking up with you, or like, you know, I want to get it in, but it's like, you don't even actually want me. You just want the experience because you're interested of just having sex with a black person. And then, like I said before, you just want me to dress up. And... I
1: would never say that to someone face to face, but I feel people are able to say things like that when it's online in an app. They're able to treat people like objects rather than as people, whereas if they were on a date
0: sitting face-to-face, they wouldn't say those Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree. I would agree. And I think, you know, I think it's up to each individual person's choice to what do you want to do with that, you know, because I, I think that you could sit back and take that shallow flattery and energy of, again, that people are messaging you and seeking you out and you could make your own determinations of that. But, you know, again, it doesn't it
1: doesn't make me feel good. So how often do you find yourself being
0: ghosted? Very rarely on those types of apps. My encounters with ghosting is Really? God, this is horrible sounding. My encounters with ghosting is actually much more frequent on the deeper side of things. So I definitely feel like when i encounter ghosting it's like someone that i've like been on legitimate dates with we're on like date 6 and then you go like that's been my side of ghosting i think a strange man who just wants me to put on like baby doll clothing and a skirt rarely ghosts me which is a common request i did not know that
1: no one has ever asked me that
0: right and i think it's like in the ways that we present Not even in the ways that we identify, but I think because like I present more feminine than you, whether it's these arbitrary things like, you know, I previously had longer hair when I had the locks. I don't have like facial or body hair, really. And so I think that people take those attributes and kind of categorize us on the binary.
1: Well, I have no problem being the man in the relationship. I reject such
0: ridiculous statements.
1: (laughs) All right. All right. I may have made light of what Nick was saying. Nick brings up a really, really good point. We are often put into categories and judgments are often made that we did not choose and which we do not agree with. And this can be very limiting in our interactions with people, specifically on dating apps. But let's jump back into the conversation and see how Nick describes dating in the technological age.
0: But I feel like the first thing that I just have to call out is like how astonished I am even myself by the idea, or I'm sorry, not the idea, by the reality of the amount of times I've met strangers. It blows my mind. And I think that's a part of, you know, my prefrontal cortex developing and finally me having some caution (laughs) less impulse control, but I have really gone to go you know, meet strangers in some precarious situations. <laughs> and so I think that's always the first thing that stands out to me. But I think that, I think it makes the communication difficult for me. I feel like now I like, you know, if I meet someone in person organically, whether it's like a bar or coffee shop or whatever, I feel like I'm not as crazy about parsing out their intentions because I'm like, it's just much more organic of getting to know somebody and kind of watching their nonverbals and things like that. But I feel like when I'm speaking to someone online, I'm like, what do you want to do? I, I don't understand because since there's this big looming cloud of, I'm like, are you only talking to me because I'm black? Or are you only talking to me because you want me to put on a baby doll skirt? Are you talking to me because you're interested to get to know me as a person? Did you read something funny on my profile? Like, I'm super crazy about being like, what is this so I can act accordingly? I, like, need hard rule books of how to interact with you because, like, you're only talking to me because, like, you want to have sex. I'm like, I mean, I don't really need to, like, talk to you about your day or something. I don't know, you know? (laughs) So it confuses me how to move forward without understanding intention.
1: Which is very difficult to tell on those apps. Essentially, can you find these meaningful relationships in the context of these dating apps? Or is it generally easier or works out
0: more effectively
1: when it's you meet naturally? So
0: I will say the vast majority of people around me have very serious relationships that have resulted from apps and websites. I have never met a romantic, meaningful relationship from an app. That's yet to happen, a meaningful, romantic one. I have become friends with multiple people um, from apps, and not always that it even started out in a romantic context, and it just turned into a friendship, but there have been other like queer people who we might have something similar about our like politics or views um, in our profiles. I've had people recognize symbols in the jewelry that I wear, um, who have like messaged me um, saying like, they recognize that West African symbol or print. And so, you know, tell me where they're from and we've actually become friends, but I have not developed a serious romantic partner from online. Let's talk about
1: sex, babe. Um, Who sings that song? I don't even know. Who does? It's Salt and Pepper. I need to help you in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> A great <song. laughs> When did you first become aware of sex?
0: So I was in the oh, first aware of sex. Ooh. Hmm. I would say so. You know what? I'm gonna say. I can tell you kind of how it happened. I'm not sure of the exact age. It was because I think it was the first time that one of my mom's boyfriends started the conversation around like Nick is kind of effeminate feminine and talking about like sexuality and like, I think that he's gay. And so my mom took me to my pastor to talk about it. And so, I mean, I was a child. So, you know, who, one, it's your pastor. So who wants to talk to their pastor about sex? Secondly, again, I was a child. It's like, I wasn't doing anything because I was just a child. And I remember this moment so vividly. My pastor asked me, you know, in his line of questioning about like, why they thought I was gay or whatever. My pastor asked me, why would you want a man's penis in your butt? And I feel like that was one of the earliest moments of me being like, is that what I'm supposed to do? Like, is that what this means? Because I feel like I was definitely still in the phase of, like, just having crushes. and thinking the boys were cute. Um, Crushing on Tommy, the Green Ranger from Power Rangers. But, yeah, he took it right to penetration. And I just remember thinking, oh, is that what that means? Like, because I like boys, that means I want them inside of me? Is that so... That was one of my earliest memories of that.
1: I think that that pastor's response was 100%
0: inappropriate. Yeah, but I think that's what we do with queer, queer, uh, queer children. To me, you know, I, we incredibly sexualize them. You know, no one started the conversation from a point of like identity or feelings or even like information. We started it from like. You're acting a little funny. That means you want to fuck a man. And I feel like that's where it came in. And that's how they kind of started.
1: What was your first sexual encounter like? Oh, my
0: gosh. So Let's let's talk about it. Let's get the details. Ooh, oh, my God. I was so naive. At heart. oh, my heart's shattering for all the naive children out in the world. And I'll tell you why I was naive. So I was at a house party. Uh, how old were you? <laughs> um...
1: The saying house party, I'm thinking, I'm hoping you had sex before you graduated college. So at some point in college, are we talking high school? Are we talking junior high? What are we, what are we talking about?
0: It, <laughs> it was the summer going into high school, okay? And so I was at this girl's house party, and her mom was like, look. Cool mom who probably shouldn't because now I don't want to be the cool mom. We needed the chaperone. But long story short, there was I was there, everybody knew I was gay. I've just been gay my whole life, Um, super gay. And there was this other boy named Brandon, and everybody knew he was gay. We're still friends, actually. And we were playing Spin the Bottle, very like classic tale. I don't know how it upped the ante. And somehow, when The bottle landed, another girl named Samantha spun the bottle and it landed on Brandon. But the girl whose house we were at was like, well, I think instead of you two kissing, Brandon should kiss Nick. And so Brandon said yes. And so like, you know, I mean, everybody's like freaking out because, you know, we're like eight or we're eighth grade. I'm sorry. We're in the eighth grade and like two boys are going to kiss. Like It was like, and so... Jessica eventually was like, well, why don't you two go down into the basement to do it? Um, like the kiss to do, to the kiss. Um, and you know, rather than giving us the like 30 seconds or whatever it is, cause we, everyone, so once the bottle landed, you would go into a closet and you would kiss in the closet. I don't know if everybody placed in the bottle, but she was like, we'll give you more time and go down into the basement. And so we went down to Jessica's basement. And he was sitting up on a pool table and I was like standing and we were just talking or whatever. And I was like, Oh my God, I've never kissed someone before. I'm like so nervous. I had such a crush on him. And somehow oral sex was performed, not to completion. I mean, we were just children, but yeah, we started performing oral sex on each other. And truly one of the main memories I have is just like, my head hitting the pool string because, again, we're down in the basement and him, like, wanting to turn the light on and me being like, oh, my God, no, turn the light off because I was so embarrassed. But last I was down there serving up some sloppy toppy. So that was the summer going into freshman year. And then, wait, I just have to give this little tidbit because this is the this is the heartbreaking part. So then afterwards, I remember being like, oh, like, I think this means that we're together. Like, this is my boyfriend. Like, oh my God, I have my first boyfriend. And so we went to this fair and I remember seeing him and he, I, I like told him, I was like, yeah, we're like boyfriends now, right? And he was like, no. Like, just hooking up is not me. We're boyfriends. And I was devastated. But when I look back on that, I'm like, oh my God. I was so young thinking, yeah, if you have oral sex with someone, then clearly you're in a relationship. How else would you define a relationship?
1: Clearly. Right. I mean, it it only makes
0: sense. I know. When I look back on it now, I'm like, oh my gosh, what little Nick didn't know was coming his way? Right.
1: Lots to learn.
0: It's heartbroken. Yes. (laughs) How often do you masturbate? I definitely ebb and flow, like 100%. It's actually crazy um because sometimes I will just go ham and it will be like I would say at least six days a week probably twice in the day and then sometimes like I'll just be off and over it because like masturbating isn't that enjoyable to be honest with you I feel like I don't enjoy it it's just more of a like release no pun um And then, so I feel like, you know, when I just, I'm kind of in that mood, I don't know, maybe like twice a week, one time. I think I have a stronger sex drive than you do. The reason why I say that, because I'm just sex, I'm very emotional about sex. And I think that people have a strong, I don't have a strong boundary between it. So it's definitely not a matter of like sex drive and horniness. It's just... I don't know. If I'm not, like, feeling something with somebody, then it's like, it's just sex is dull to me. I don't feel something with myself, if you will. So I think that's why the masturbation kind of ebbs and flows because right. I'm not, like, emotionally stimulating myself, if you will.
1: <laughs> Have you ever had an unconventional sexual experience?
0: Um. So I've definitely had, like, Anonymous encounters. I mean and it's so funny, like so we never like swap names. Like I've been at the bathhouse before, but like we swap life stories. Like I felt connected to him. He was a pilot. He had two children. Um he lived through an earthquake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so just different things like that that we talked about both.
1: these these are the important these are the important details of any sexual yeah. encounter. You need you need to know these things.
0: And after, and I never got his name. But the, like right when I was like, "Well, I think I'm gonna leave." He was like, "Well, do you want to come back to my room and like fool around?" And I was like, "Oh, okay." And then like that happened, and I left. And you know, still don't know his name. We never spoke again. So I've had encounters like that. Um, I've been I've joined a couple before, not like romantically, but sexually. Um, I actually went to an orgy, but I didn't do anything because I i was like, I'm a big person of like, I think everybody should push their boundaries. And so like, I'm not a nude person. I'm like, so insecure. I'm like, cover up, put me in anything, give me a towel. And so because of that, I went through this phase of my life, like six months where I was like, let me do things that will push my being comfortable with my skin boundary. So I went to the orgy, like I just said, and I had to walk around nude. And there were like 50 people in this house. It was like horrifying for me. Um, I think it was sexy to be in this like erotic zone and just having people around you like fucking. I thought it was really cool because my inner social worker came out. I thought it was really cool that there were actually a lot of girlfriends and wives there watching their boyfriends and husbands have sex with men. So I was talking to the girls because I was like, tell me more about how you got here to like be comfortable because I think that that is so great and so healthy. So I spoke with them a lot. But like I said, nothing happened. I just left after like an hour. And then I joined this like male nude yoga group. That again was supposed to be about body positivity, but definitely would pretty much just turn into an orgy at the end <laughs> of the yoga session. And so, for the longest, I didn't do anything because um, I really was there for the exact reason. Because doing yoga in the nude in front of strangers is horrifying because, like, you're bent over and twisted, your stomach is dangling. Down. It was horrible. But I'm, and then one of the last times I went, the yoga teacher did somehow. Talk me into fooling around with him, but that was overall a non-sexual experience. So, yeah.
1: Describe what an orgasm feels like.
0: So, I definitely think that I have multiple layers. So, I'll start with like a masturbatory orgasm. I feel like that feels like I just took a muscle relaxer, like a Xanax. Like it's just kind of like a release that feels like some of my anxiety has gone away i usually masturbate like before bed for that exact reason i'm just a very anxious person my energy is like off the charts um in a lot of ways that i don't like so that's kind of a masturbatory one i think my favorite kind of orgasms literally feel like a deep abdominal contusion like it just feels like every muscle in my core just like tenses up in this way I don't even know how to describe it like and it just sends me over the moon I feel like that usually happens for me if I'm on top or missionary um yeah oh my gosh I'm sorry I'm like see I'm slipping into bliss thinking about it it's just like it's beautiful it's wonderful um I love. I feel like those are the types of orgasms where you laugh. I I often laugh after a good orgasm, which is definitely alarming. I feel like to my sexual partners, um, who are off, like, why are you laughing? And I'm like, you know, I'm like, don't ruin this for me. Let me ride this high and just let me giggle.
1: So. For me, one of the more important things in any sexual encounter, or relationship is that there is a sense of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like sex creates intimacy or what is it that brings into me intimacy together when you're engaging with someone else? What creates it? A-
0: so I have never had sex create intimacy. I definitely have had times where I think sex can deepen intimacy, but it, it's never kind of begotted for me. Um, I think the ways that it's created, you know, I, I hate to be so conceptual, like I wish I had like kind of harder specific lines to draw. But I think for me, the way I think about it is like, it's so rare that I feel comfortable. You know, I always think of it in my you know, actually, I link it a lot to, like, identity politics. So, and this is how I understand it, you know, that I feel like so often, like, being, again, like, a Black queer person, I feel like I'm always in these spaces where I'm wearing a mask because of various reasons. You know, I could be at work um, or just, like, in predominantly white spaces where, like, a certain language I might use. Wait, why are you shaking your head? The
1: reason I mentioned that was... I was shaking my head was because that's the one thing I never want you to feel with me, that you have to put on a mask. Even though I am white and have white privilege. I Well, I was going to elaborate. I do not want you to feel uncomfortable in my presence. In fact, I accept you for who you are inside and out. And I want you to know that. So that's the only reason I was shaking my head.
0: And I don't think that race is a barrier to that. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I don't think that, like, you know, that cannot be if I'm not with Black or queer people. That wasn't what I was saying. But how I, how I think about it, though, I just relate it to that because, you know, being that, I think you and I have both talked about being, like, huge introverts. Um, and so I feel like it's not actually that I don't enjoy the socializing or things like that, but it's because when I come home, everything comes off, and I'm just weird, and I'm mean. Um, Sex in the City actually had a whole episode about this where they call it your single people behavior. Um, and just the things that you do when you're alone and you're being authentic. And so, how that relates to partner intimacy for me is exactly that. You know, I'm weird and I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not insecure about it, but I just know that about myself. I'm just a weird person. So, I feel like what has created intimacy for me is just the safety that I think someone can provide by like seeing me authentically. And I think that there's definitely different ways that that can be created. But I I would say for me, it always starts with safety because that is the number one thing that I feel that I look for in a partner is safety. So that would be like managing ego, for example. Um, I said, so for example, that would be like a partner who can manage their ego coming into a conversation safe and open, because sometimes it just is what it is. So, safety.
1: I feel compelled to jump in really quickly, as I loved what Nick just said. Specifically, the importance of being able to be authentically ourselves. First of all, just the very aspect of being able to do that, to being comfortable in our own skin being able to be genuinely yourself around another person that it isn't just the fact that you have someone else in your life uh, to be able to share things with, but that you can be truly yourself genuinely and authentically. And in doing that requires a certain level of vulnerability and that calls for all the more reason for safety. I just, I really liked how Nick described that. And I just wanted to, to comment on that because I think that there is a lot of truth in that. So Nick, are you gay, straight, bisexual, transgender? What is your sexual
0: orientation? I would answer that question. which I <laughs> loathe answering my questions so much. I would say my gender and sexual identities for myself personally are queer.
1: So you identify queer rather than gay? Correct.
0: Why? Because I think that a gay person is someone who is only a man. And I think that I am a man. I'm not a man. I'm more than a man. I I think saying that I am a man doesn't encompass who I am.
1: What was coming out
0: like for you? It felt long. There were so many phases to it and confusing. You know, not because I was confused, but I, because the people around me didn't know what to do. Um, you know, I think an, an example of that confusion would be, you know, once my family found out that I was gay, and they were like, well, you're gay because you, like, hang out with too many girls and you're feminine. And so, you know, they did the hilarious thing of then not letting me have girlfriends any longer. So, like, I could only go stay the night at, like, guys' houses. And this is when I was, like, younger pre sect you know. But it's like, I get their logic, but it was also just hilarious when I look back on those things when I'm like in the ninth grade, and they're like, you can only go stay at Greg's house. And I'm like, that's probably not where you should be staring me to go. You should probably go let me stay at Jessica's house. (laughs) But it was just very confusing, because they would just kind of pick and choose rules at random. And then when they didn't work, they'd like switch up the rules and... (laughs) Which is very, but they they didn't know what they were doing, so that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then they would also, like, capitalize on it at times. So what I mean by that is there would would be moments, like, you know, being, we were the kids, they were the adults, I have an older brother. My brother wouldn't want to, like, do laundry if it, like, had to do with my mom's, like, undergarments, you know, because he was just being a stupid classic boy. He's like, underwear! Or, like, if she would send us to the store, like, he was too embarrassed to go buy tampons and things like that for my mom. So, like, she would have me do those things, which, again, was another confusing thing because I'm like, you're aware of this thing that you're using to your benefit that I'm not supposed to be doing, and so shouldn't you be treating me just like my brother and, like, I'm not allowed to buy tampons? And I was just always confused. (laughs) And, again, not for me, but for them.
1: Well, it's, I mean, I would say that raising a child who is not cisgendered or falls within the traditional sexual orientation boundaries is is difficult and there isn't really a way of knowing what's right and what's wrong and you kind of have to figure it out as you go along which is why I think a lot of us are fucked up okay
0: not to police words but I would say not difficult I don't think difficult raising that child and I, I definitely don't think that there is a way so I see that that is a challenge, but I think the baseline skills that you can do is like starting with communication. And so because I, I'd, again, because I don't think that there is a way to raise a trans child, a queer child or whatever, but I think that figuring it out together with the child, remembering, you know, you can be person-centered with a child because they are little people too. So I think that you guys can figure that out together in a collaborative way.
1: Oh, this is ripe for conversation. I find this fascinating that I took the side of parents having difficulty in raising a child who falls outside of typical heterosexuality rather than taking the side of the individual struggling with same-sex attraction slash non-binary sexual orientation somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum. I find that interesting. I really like that Nick pushed back on that specifically because sexual orientation does not define a person. The whole point of family is unconditional love. Am I right? I mean, come on. And we should be able to do that. We should expect more of our parents and our society, for that matter, in caring for people who fall outside of heterosexuality. And I think our culture has made some major steps in that regard. But I think we still have a long ways to go. What does it mean for cisgendered people to be allies of the LGBTQ Q population or community. What what does that mean and what does that look like?
0: So I would say in twenty nineteen, what that means is, you know, I think you look into the past and the meaning of that has shifted for these positive ways, but I think the ally shift needs to shift as well. The first thing that I think about is I think 30 years ago, being an ally often took the form of being the voice for the voiceless. And I think that because of the positive ways that we've come in terms of our understanding of the queer world and different gender identities, I would say now we're, we live in a time of past the mic. I do not believe using your voice to occupy space, talking about people that you're not a part of, is allyship. Um, so I think that that's the first thing. You know, I look at people who were my little... Gay heroes growing up, like someone like a Madonna who brought a lot of, if you will, our issues forward to the world in a time where I don't feel like we were able to do that. but again, I don't I don't think that's it any longer. I would say gaslighting is another big one, just believing people's experiences, you know, i I would have these very mundane interactions with people that would blow their mind. And it it helped me, and I'll give you an example, but it helped me to understand how much, if you're not really listening, what you don't know. So through college, I served tables. I had an experience before I was going um, to work. I stopped at a McDonald's and met up with a friend. And these men driving by, I don't recall what I was wearing, but these men driving by just, they yelled faggot at me. I was at the McDonald's on Dorset. They were driving by Dorset and they yelled faggot at me. I was unfazed and unbothered. I'm used to it. And so I don't know how it came up, but when I was speaking with one of my male servers and he heard me telling the story, he was absolutely floored that he was like, people yell things at you from the car? And he couldn't believe it. And that helped me so much because I'm like, you just don't know what you don't know. Right. You know I think the more academic way to say that is that privilege blinds you. And so I think that if an ally can understand, you're not gonna know everything, that's fine. You don't need to know everything. You're gonna mess up, you're gonna be blind, just like I am in the ways I have privilege. But I think an ally coming in who says, there are things that I don't know and I just need to listen. I, I feel so often when I speak to people who want to be allies that they want to rationalize and even kind of control the narrative. And if it doesn't make sense to them what you're saying, there's almost this reluctance. They're like, but that doesn't make sense with how I thought it is. And I'm like, but I'm here to tell you what it is, right. I live it. Um, and I, again, I think all these people were well-intentioned, but my job is to not make it make sense to you. If you if you understand. The first job is for you to listen to my experiences. And again, that's across the board. So understand, I think checking yourself to understand, I don't know what I don't know. So let me listen, period.
1: Is it okay for our straight friends to play matchmaker with their gay friends?
0: So I'm going to say ultimately, yes, because I think that, You know, I think there's a whole lot of intention that I think is a given. I definitely think that your listeners are probably intelligent enough to understand, you know, if someone's like, you're gay, he's gay. Oh my God, be gay together. That's a way different thing than like, maybe someone who's straight knows two humans who knows you two have similar values and wants and expectations. You're in similar places in life in terms of what you're looking for. And so I think that meeting someone through friends is a, great way to meet because they know you um, and I think that there's a safety to that and so on and so forth there's an accountability to that and so I think that that's a great way to meet people simply all about how kind of deep your intentions are and how shallow you're being because I definitely had that experience um, and even just like the level ones you know also if you're going to do this like learn our world because I can't tell you how many straight girls have tried to set me up with like 100% pure bottoms. And I'm like, what are we going to do, girl? What, what are, what are we going to do? We cannot,
1: we cannot make love.
0: It, it, it just ain't go. We can be the best of friends, but what are we going to do? So I think again, just being aware of the additional layer you need to think about because it isn't as simple as when you're setting up a man and woman. Um, Cause yes, while we are individual people, there's some, operational mechanics you need to be mindful
1: of. (laughs) You were talking before about using the word queer as a self-identifier over the word gay and you went in and explained that a little bit. Is there a need in today's society for these labels? Because in the end is it not is, is sexual orientation not a spectrum for everyone anyhow? Even for people who are straight Even for people who are LGBTQ, isn't sexual orientation a spectrum? And if so, why in the world are we relying on such stringent labels? Yeah.
0: So I will say for myself, and maybe, you know, this doesn't work for everybody. I think I'm a very verbal person. And I think that we've seen the power of what words can do. And what I mean by that is that I think our world is so shaped by our understanding of language. And I think that there's a lot of science behind that, which actually I can go into just a little bit, but I think how far, you know, this is more of a question, how far will our understanding go if we don't even have the language to dissect and understand what we're discussing? So when I look at things that are maybe older, like Audre Lorde's work, I feel like if it were not for people like Audre Lorde giving me the language that I use today in order to like represent myself and more more importantly, getting people to understand. You know, did I need the word queer to understand how I feel? No. But in every interaction that I have where I'm trying to convey to someone how I feel, how I feel respected and seen and so on and so forth, I need these words to bridge this gap of understanding. People don't know what's in my heart, in my mind, and that's fine. <laughs> so the language piece is so pivotal for me for feeling understood, which I think is so basic to how we all want to feel. But I, you know, I remember in class, and it's just a hypothesis, you know. But I remember actually we discussed um, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which again talks about how much language shapes our world. What exists if you don't have the language? around it. And I felt like when I was learning that and researching that, that made all the difference for me. Um, Because the representation, I think that we most often we talk about is very visual piece, but I think in order for me to be understood intellectually, spiritually, so on and so forth, it's more than even just seeing me. I need language to exist for me.
1: When thinking of your identity, and your experience as a queer black man, what would you say to someone who's currently questioning their sexual orientation and thinks that they may be gay? What would your advice or feedback,
0: or guidance rather, be to a person in that situation? I think the first thing that I always do whenever I'm talking to people like that is peeling it back to trying to get to as like like a reduction of trying to peel it back to what is it that you're feeling? Because, you know, it, it's funny you ask that question in that order because while I think that labels and understanding are pivotal, as I just said, I think that when we're exploring things, I think that if we start the conversation at the labels and the predetermined concepts, like someone saying, I think that I'm gay, I think that we can sometimes confuse ourselves. So I think what worked for me in the past and what I try to do with people is before we even try to figure out if you're gay, and what are you feeling? What are you curious about? What are you attracted to? Why are you feeling this? Because I think the more we can develop what it is, what sensations are happening, the more we can develop that, we can worry about labeling. For myself, how I think that this influenced me or helped me. But there was a it was a short window, albeit, but there was a window in time where I thought maybe I'm trans. Because when I was younger and I I knew I wasn't feeling the male label and identity, I thought, well that must mean I'm a woman. Because at that time that was how I understood gender. It was a binary. And so I was like, well, I know if I don't check this box, then surely That means I'm going to check this other box. And so that must mean that I'm a trans person. And I like jumped on this bandwagon. I was like researching. I'm like, how do I figure this out? I think I need to go talk to somebody. And so I feel like going on that journey myself, what helped me was peeling it all the way back of saying, well, it's not that I think that I reject being a man, but I feel larger than this. I feel more expansive than what I'm thinking of as this concept and what are these rules? And, you know, it was all the reductionist work that helped me to break the concept down that got me to a determination that helped give me the language and the label and the place to identify. So I try to start there with people because I think starting with my label was taking me way off path for how I actually and truly feel about myself.
1: For all that labels have done, in helping us understand our community, getting to know other people who are similar to us, and being able to place an identity onto ourselves. For all that that has done, perhaps more has been done in damage. Because I think for a lot of people, they start with the label rather than the heart. And I think it's really important. I, I think Nick is, again, right on the money when he's talking about not allowing the labels to define you, but allowing you to define the label. Rather than looking to these, these labels, looking to uh, these stereotypes that are active in our community and active in our society, rather than turning to those as your guide, rather listen to your heart. And listen to your friends. Reach out to your friends. Reach out for support. Seek self-exploration and find yourself. And maybe you'll find yourself fitting into one of the labels, but maybe you won't. And if you don't, that's okay too. And if you do, that's alright as well. The point is not the label. The point, being comfortable in your own skin and accepting yourself for who you are. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
0: You know, I would just share that I have two concerns, and concerns is even a little bit of a loose term, but there's two things that have been on my mind that I, don't, I really don't know the answer to, so these are kind of rhetorical statements, but the first one is around mm-hmm. what it looks like as your culture and your ways get normalized and accepted. You know, I obviously think that acceptance is great. I think it's like astronomical, the amount of progress, if you will, we've made around gender and sex culture in this country, around queer people and LGBT community in a lot of ways. You know, I I feel like I I remember sneaking and watching Will and Grace, you know, being a young kid, grew up watching like Kurt have a gay kiss on Glee, you know, makes me swell with joy. But I think the adult side of it that I flip this, it makes me sad when I see our spaces going away. You know, here in St. Louis, we obviously have the Grove. Um, and even more specifically like the bar JJ's. And so I think as I'm saying that bars like that or spaces like that in the Grove are getting much more straight friendly, which is fine. I have no issue with straight people coming into gay bars. But I think as that community changes, I think as that kind of gentrification happens, which I think we often look at gentrification around race, which is important, but there's also a gentrification around gay communities that I think go into these like under supported areas. You know, you look at the Grove and like historically, it was kind of run down. (laughs) It wasn't that great, wasn't that safe, didn't have a lot of investment. And so when I talk to these bar owners, people bar owners of Novaks, people who have owned um, attitudes, people who have earned—or I'm sorry, people have owned Ernie's—you know—the common narrative that I hear that of them discussing is when this was a rundown area that was our safe space. They were afford to—they could afford to be renters, you know—in these areas that have these bars that were spaces for us. And so as this area develops, as straight people come in, as you have things like the Chroma being built and other types of investment from the larger predominant society, this takes up rent. The gay bar owners, I'm sorry, renters can't afford that any longer. And then you have the new cropping up of all these straight bars. And that really breaks my heart. Because when I was 18, having that space that was the grove that was just gay was really important. I could dress however I wanted and act however I want. I am not saying that in this huge doomsday, like that is gone. But you know, when I when you have instances of, you know, I've had straight men who are coming out of one bar yell obscene things at me coming out of the gay bar. And that tension of what it means when we're all intermingling and that we don't have that space just as our own any longer. It's, it's been something that's really been weighing on my mind. And it breaks my heart that these gay bar owners are saying, I can't afford to keep my bar open any longer because now this area is developed, which was done at the work of the gay community. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I don't think that that, I don't think the Grove would be what it was if it were not for that community of those bars down there, for example, again. So that's something that I definitely think about pretty often. I would say the other thing that I really do keep in mind again is how much we don't pay attention enough to our differences and nuance in our own community. Um, So whether that's race and gender, you know, I've had lots of different experiences where I I didn't know how to feel in gay bars, whether or not, you know, I've, I've been in gay bars where they've turned women away, where they said this was like a men's only night. And I thought to myself, like, you know, I was like, how far does that go? Can a trans man come? Like, what does that, can a drag queen come in here? I, I don't know what that means. Um, I've been in spaces where a drunk girl has been kicked out of the bar because she was drunk. Like, 100% this girl was in the wrong, but this was a gay bar with male bartenders. And I felt like the male staff handled her physically as they were removing her incredibly aggressively. Incredibly I've been in gay bars where I've watched gay men grope other women, you know, obviously with no sexual intention, but just because you're gay doesn't mean autonomy doesn't exist and you don't need permission to still grab her, especially if you're gonna be grabbing on, like, her breast. So there's a lot of things like that that I don't feel like we're looking at in our community because I think that our focus is very, well, we're gay and they're straight, they're the power group, we're the oppressed you know, group, and that's where all the work is. And I would like to see us continuing to develop. Like, while that's still a very relevant conversation by no means of getting the right to marry means that that power structure is gone, but I would like us to be doing more internal work. And I, I get worried about that because as gay, people or men or whatever, we can still be harboring toxic masculinity. We can still have rape culture. There's still issues around domestic violence. There's a lot of rampant racism. There's still transphobia. There's so much work for us to do and try to work on that relationship, which is equally as important. So those two things, I don't know what's going to come of that. I don't know what it looks like. I don't I don't know what a boy's town in Chicago looks like or Hell's Kitchen in New York. Or, you know, I don't know what neighborhoods 50 years from now look like if we continue to move in this great direction which is acceptance and progress and i also don't know what our community becomes if we don't do more work to work on ourselves as well so i'm curious to see what those things
1: come. wow nick i just want to thank you so much for today's conversation we have dived deep We've gone from your own personal story, we've talked about the dating scene, we've talked about sex, we've talked about relationships, we've dived into things that we need to do as a, as a community to grow. We've explored ways uh, for people who may be finding themselves on the, within the LGBT spectrum and what they can do to move forward. This has been an incredible conversation, and I just want to thank you so much for being a part of it with me today. And with that, tune in next week for the next episode.
0: Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes.